So I'm going to talk about, about voluntary carbon offsets, and I'm going to say in a minute what that actually is. And the rest of the title seems to change all the time, so whenever I give this talk I have a slightly different title, but um, it's, it's basically always about the, about the same um, idea. So, so here's the program. Um, I say something about voluntary carbon offsets, what they are, um, what the proposal is here. I um, explain how this market for these voluntary carbon offsets um, works and where a potential problem might lie with this market. And then I um, try to do some analysis of the more problems arising from, from the market structure that we find there. So um, here's the proposal. So um, this was something like a few months ago. I was flying with the EasyJet from Luton to Zurich, and um, they offered me to offset my carbon emissions from that flight. So they tell me, well, reduce the impact of the carbon emissions from your flights um, through UN-certified emission reduction projects, I pay £2.72 um, to balance 209 kilograms of carbon, and um, for that, then EasyJet will invest into this project here, so they're building a hydroelectric power plant in Ecuador that is then reducing carbon emissions in Ecuador. So overall, uh, the idea is that the carbon emissions from my flight will be balanced out, and I'm, so to say, carbon neutral. Well, I mean, you can ask yourself a lot of questions here. I mean, um, one question is, um, what's on this picture? Um, <laughs> it's apparently not the power plant that they're going to build, but maybe it's something like um, a similar picture or so. Um, the other question is, should you actually do it? Um, and maybe another question is, is it then permissible to fly around as much as you like once you offset all your emissions? So... Can you say that if you just consider the, the offsetting, as, uh, the, the carbon emission aspect of the flight, can you say, well, um, as long as you offset all the emissions, you can fly as much as you want, or are there additional further problems here? So that might be um, the first take on the problem. Well, I can give you some more offsetting examples. Well, flights are the most popular one, so EasyJet is doing it, Swiss is doing it, I think BA is doing it now, I think we will see some more of that. Um, the... FIFA World Cup 2006 was actually carbon neutral, or so they say, because they brought all the offsets to compensate for all the flights um, arising from the World Cup. Um, land rovers, amazingly, are also carbon neutral, um, because they buy um, carbon offsets for the first 45,000 miles that you're going to drive with your new big land rover with these massive carbon emissions. <laughs> and I mean, you can already see where this is leading. This might actually um, be a problem. So the research, research question first take then is, are excess carbon emissions permissible if they are offset? A few words about um, the market for voluntary carbon offsets. So the first thing to observe is this market is actually very, very small. So currently, um, regarding flights, for example, only 1% or 2% of um, um, flights are actually bought with um, carbon offsets. And in general, I think the market is much smaller than, than, the, than the, the emission levels that you find in an in, in advanced country like the UK, for example. An additional point is these projects can go horribly wrong. So, I mean, maybe the first thing you want to have a look at is the practical problems you're facing here. So, sometimes projects just fail. I know that the band Coldplay, for example, they devised their own carbon offsetting schemes. They were planting mango trees in India to offset all their carbon emissions from their, uh, from their concerts. Turned out that these mango trees all died in a drought. And, um, well, I mean, how do you evaluate such a project when it's not working? But, okay, these are actually the, the practical problems you might face. An additional practical problem is um, the lack of additionality. So it's often very dif difficult to prove what exactly 
the level of offsetting is, because what you need here is something like a counterfactual scenario, what would have happened if you hadn't done this additional project. So, for example, in case of my flight, what would have happened if um, EasyJet wasn't paying for this hydroelectric power plant? Would it have been built anyhow? Would something else have happened? So, I mean, all these questions are very difficult because you need, um, you need a baseline scenario. It's always very difficult to actually find a suitable baseline scenario. Um, another problem is lack of permanence. Often you don't know how long these savings actually last. So, if, for example, if you plant trees, then these trees might actually capture carbon for a while, but if you actually then chop them down later, then I mean, these emissions are released later. So um, that's not really uh, an offset. Um, double counting is a problem. So quite often, actually, you have um, carbon offsets on the one end in the private market, and then the country is actually counting these offsets again to actually also trade it as an emission certificate on the international carbon trade market. Um, of course, that's also not good. And there are sometimes massive time lags, so when will my power station actually be built? I mean, no one really knows when it will be finished. Um, there's a complete lack of standards for all these emission estimates, or rather, there's so many standards that we're all completely confused by now. So there are something like 20, 30 different standards for these um, certificates. So that's another problem. And of course, you can have unintended side effects. So say my power plant in Ecuador is suddenly causing troubles later on downstream because there's not enough water um, arriving at the lower levels of the river or something like that. So all these are the practical problems of carbon offsetting. So what I propose now, let's, let's put all the practical problems aside. Let's assume the carbon offsets just work perfectly fine, all these problems are solved. I argue that you still find quite a few very difficult questions that you, that you want to answer before you want to say, well, carbon offsets um, are a great idea. So let's think about a market for, for carbon offsets. And this may look a bit frightening, it's, it's really not, it's, it's really fairly easy. So. Um, on the x-axis, you have the amount of carbon offsets um, that are bought. On the y-axis, you have the price for these carbon offsets. Now, the first curve we want to look at here are the, the marginal abatement costs. So these are the costs you have to pay if you want to offset another additional ton of CO2. Well, while does this curve slow, slow upward? Well, the idea is you order all the projects that you have available. So, I mean, obviously what you want to do is you start with the cheapest one. You start with the one where you get actually um, the strongest, the best reduction for the pound that you invest. So that would be down here. And then, of course, you take the next best one, and the next best one, and the next best one. You can see the more offsetting you want to do, the more expensive it actually becomes. At least if we assume that everything else remains equal, so that we don't invent new technologies along the way or so. The second thing you want to have a look at is the demand curve. And now let's, let's first look at the voluntary carbon market. In a voluntary carbon market, and this is now an assumption I'm making, it's, you could probably test this empirically, I'm just, I'm just assuming that the voluntary market looks somehow like this here. I assume that there's a relatively small um, percentage of people who are actually voluntarily buying these offsets, mainly because they're convinced it's a good thing, mainly because they feel good about it. And within a certain price bracket, say from, from zero to to this level here, um, the number of people and the, the, the quantity of, of um, carbon offset that is bought does not really vary. So whether you pay 50, um, 50p or a pound or two pounds or so, that probably doesn't, vary, doesn't matter very much for people. <coughs> but when the price actually then goes up, 
above a certain threshold, then I assume that people actually are quite price sensitive. So if you pay, say, 10 pounds, 20 pounds, 50 pounds, whatever, there is a point where people will actually react to these higher prices and say, okay, I mean, it's a nice idea, carbon offsetting, but actually voluntarily I'm not going to do that. So then actually this phenomenon actually trickles out and then you, at some point at a certain price, people just don't offset anymore. Now consider what happens if you... Um, we're actually making this um, an obligation, so everyone has to buy these carbon offsets. One thing you realize is that the demand would be much higher. So, I mean, currently only 1-2% of people are buying the offsets. Now suddenly 1% are buying. So the demand curve is much further out in this direction here. And what you also see with this marginal um, abatement cost curve, the price goes up dramatically, and of course the volume that, you, that you're buying also goes up. The interesting thing about... Um, a market that is structured in that way is this. If you consider the maximum price that people were willing to pay voluntarily, you can see that this price is actually much lower than the market price that you would find if everyone was forced to offset all the excess emissions. And this, of course, might be a very interesting problem. So we might see a market here where people actually get much cheaper carbon offsets than they would actually get if everyone was complying with say, legislation that you have to offset. So the question then is, even if you offset, and if you pay these, say, £2.72 that I have to pay, isn't it the case that you just get a very cheap ride here? Isn't it the case that kind of this, this kind of wrong market price, the market price that you find um, under very partial compliance compared to full compliance, just gives you the illusion that you're doing enough here, while in reality you're just getting a very cheap way to kind of buy yourself a clear conscience? So, a revised version of the research question then is, are excess carbon emissions permissible if they are offset and the market price is low due to partial compliance? So, um, so here are three assumptions that um, I think are quite crucial to make this um, actually um, work. So, the first assumption is we have some kind of permissible limit of, of um, emissions for, for all of us collectively. So there must, be, there must be a level where it is sustainable to emit. We don't know exactly where it is, but I mean, science, of course, gives us an idea that we have to reduce overall emissions quite dramatically. Maybe it's something like 30% of the current emission level or, or something around that. It doesn't really matter. The, the um, important is the assumption that there is some kind of sustainable level. Starting from that sustainable level, then you can also have something like an individual um, limit of sustainable emissions. You need that because you cannot really be carbon neutral as such. I mean, you're, you're breathing, you are engaging in certain activities, you have to heat your house. I mean, people always will create some carbon emissions, but it is, I think, reasonable to assume that there might be a sustainable level. It might be the same level for everyone. It might maybe be higher in, for example, cold regions and a bit lower in warmer regions. So you might discuss about how to fix this individual lim limit for everyone, but I think there is such, such, a, such a limit. And I also, well, I assume and I hope that um, this limit is such that people can actually live within these restrictions. And this might still be the case, although, I mean, with more and more people on, on the earth, you're no longer quite sure whether that's actually still the case. So here's um, a first potential um, solution to the problem of the cheap prices under partial compliance. You could sell, say, well, why not go for something like um, collective consequentialism? The idea being um, that you just consider the prices that you would have if everyone had to comply. And this, um, 
is uh, an adaptation from an idea that is discussed in, the, in relation to um, um, questions of beneficence. So, um, um, Liam Murphy is, is putting it like this, he's putting it into his compliance condition, and that runs like this. So, agent neutral principles should not, under partial compliance, require sacrifice of an agent with a total compliance effect on her. Taking that sacrifice into account would be worse than it would be all other aspects of the situation remaining the same under full compliance from now. So, what's the idea? You just consider the level of sacrifice you would have to make under full compliance if everyone had to offset all the flights and all the other excess emissions, and then you have to pay that level. So basically it says the price would have to be much higher, uh, the carbon emissions, uh, the carbon offsets must be more, more expensive. Murphy was thinking about this example in the case of beneficence, and there the idea is the more people actually, say, help other people in Africa to survive, the cheaper it actually gets for every single individual. The case of the carbon market, especially because it gets more and more expensive, the more people actually participate. So it's not entirely clear whether Murphy would be happy with how I am adopting his ideas here. And, and you can also discuss whether beneficence is the right um, analogy with, with the carbon market. But, I mean, very generally, um, taking, taking ideas of collective consequentialism, maybe directly from Parfit as well, um, I think would be one way of going here. I don't really like that solution. And I'm, I'm going to tell you why. And uh, I will tell you by um, giving you um, um, a rather contrived example, I have to admit, but I, I hope it brings home the point. So um, consider um, a situation where you are um, celebrating regular parties with, with friends. So say you are five people, and this party operates on the rule that everyone has to bring a bottle of wine. Now, as a matter of fact, um, all the other guys are not bringing bottles of wine. Um, you're the only one who's bringing the bottle of wine. The only source of wine in the village where you're living is a wine shop, and this wine shop has a rather strange uh, price schedule. The price schedule is, is this one here. So this, this um, wine merchant is actually selling according to demand. If the demand is just one bottle, he sells it for one pound. If the demand is two bottles, he sells the bottle for two pounds. If the demand is three bottles, then for three pounds, and so on. So the higher the demand, the higher the price for the bottles. Now consider what is happening here um, if you are the only one complying. You get this one bottle that you have to buy for one pound, so it's cheap for you. If you follow the compliance condition here, that means you have to um, consider the situation where everyone was complying and then you have to make an equal sacrifice. So if everyone is complying, then you would be paying five pounds for your bottle. So does that mean now that you have to pay five pounds for this one bottle of wine that you're bringing just because your friends are not complying with the bring the wine along rule. Well, I find that completely implausible. I think there are situations where due to partial compliance uh, the level of sacrifice changes, but you don't want to say that you always have to make the sacrifice that would obtain under full compliance. Because in this case, it's really not your fault that you get a better price for the wine bottle. It's, it's, it's weird to say that you have to make a higher sacrifice. And my point is, even though this example is quite contrived, I think that the carbon offsetting market has exactly the same structure. Why would you want to ask someone who actually is complying um, with this ideal of offsetting um, that he pays for, for, for something that, um, well, that pays for the additional price that would obtain if everyone was complying? I mean, after all, it's not his fault that other people are not complying. So I find, I find the compliance condition principle um, 
a weird form of principle. So I, I, I rather doubt that this is the right approach. But of course the alternative is to go with something very simple like the individual limit principle. People just have to offset all the excess emissions that they are causing above this um, limit of emissions that they are, can cause in a sustainable way. That has a few advantages. It has in particular the advantage that you are not required to make any additional sacrifices just because other people are not complying. Well, but then the problem is, it's, I seem to have argued myself into a corner, so my initial intuition that the people who are flying around the world um, have to do maybe more or are doing something wrong if they are flying around the world and offsetting all these, all these emissions, or the people who are uh, buying big land rovers and just offset the emissions, they're still doing somehow something that is not permissible. That was my initial intuition. And now I seem to have argued myself in the corner that I end up with the individual limit principle, which would actually make exactly that kind of behavior permissible. So it seems to me I, I need a new approach here, and um, hand-waving continues. So this is what another approach... Um, what could a different approach be? Well, one possible way of addressing the problem here is not to consider so much what is permissible, but rather considering the moral worth of these actions. And rather than just looking at what people actually bring about as the causes of the action, wonder about the motives for the actions. And I want to step back a little bit and just remind you um, um, of Kant's concept of the goodwill. So Kant says about the goodwill, it is impossible to think of anything at all in the world, or indeed even beyond it, that could be considered good without limitation except a goodwill. So he's, he's looking for, for what he calls the unconditional good, something that is not contingent onto any other properties of, of the actions except that they are caused by, by a goodwill. So he's discussing that when he, when he talks about the philanthropist. The philanthropist is this guy who's actually enjoying, um, spreading joy around, and um, Kant then compares this kind of joyful philanthropist with the philanthropist um, who's actually quite grumpy and is not enjoying it. And some people take Kant to say, well, actually the grumpy philanthropist is actually the one who is um, kind of doing actions that have a higher moral worth. And um, most Kant's uh, scholars say, well, this is actually the wrong interpretation. The point of comparing this kind of the, the happy philanthropist and the, and the grumpy philanthropist is just to say, well, what really matters is that the, that the pivotal motive that you're following here, what really, what really drives your action is that you're doing it from duty for the sake of duty. And I argue that maybe something like that is also important to assess what is going on when we talk about these, these carbon offsets. So maybe you want to talk about the motivational robustness of these offsets. So if you, if you follow the Kantian route, what you want to say is that people have a robust motive of duty. So that means in this particular case that even if the price changes, even under a situation of full compliance, you want to see people who are actually still offset, who are not kind of deterred by the fact that they now have to pay a higher price for that. And what you don't want to see is, is something much more contingent where people just say, okay, as long as it's cheap, I'm going to do it, but if it's, if it's getting more expensive, then I'm actually not offsetting. Now, obviously, the problem is that we don't really know for what reasons people buy these offsets. might be the case that some people are just convinced that this is the right thing to do and they will do it no matter what price obtains. Much more likely, though, that many people just buy them because it gives them a good feeling and it's cheap. So I think that really where the, where the, 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 the crux of the issue is, is really... Um, the motivational robustness of these um, offsetting actions. And you could ask yourself then, 
in a kind of Kantian fashion, what kind of maxims are these people actually following that, that buy these offsets? Well, maybe they follow something nice like maxim one, so I offset my excess emissions by buying carbon offsets, or equally nice uh, conditional maxim like maxim two, if I cause excess emissions, I buy carbon offsets, or I refrain from the emission activity. But I think it's actually much more likely that they follow something like maxim three or maxim four, so I cause excess emissions and buy carbon offsets as long as these offsets are cheap in order to neutralize these excess emissions. Or even more pointedly, maxim four, I offset excess emissions as long as the sacrifice is small in order to have a clear conscience regarding my excess emissions. So it might very well be the case that they're just clearing their conscience on the cheap, so to say. So to quickly um, summarize, um, I think a working um, system of carbon offsetting is actually um, not a stupid thing to have. I think it's actually quite nice to help people to meet their responsibilities regarding the greenhouse gas emission limits if this system is implemented in such a way that it avoids all the problems that I have addressed. There's the obvious problem of partial compliance. So if you do this on a voluntary basis, then you create prices that are not really reflecting the prices that you would see under, under full compliance. I do think that the individual limit principle is actually more convincing than uh, the compliance condition or another principle that I haven't discussed here today. But I also believe that a Kantian perspective by considering the motives that people might have for buying these offsets is particularly important in a market structure where you, where you will find that partial compliance brings about much lower prices than um, a market structure with full compliance. Thanks very much.